Hey, Gabe. Hey, what's up, Tim? For the podcast today, we watched a retelling, maybe a shot-for-shot remake, of the classic Charles Dickens story, A Christmas Carol. But this time, it escalated the stakes from a miserly old banker denying his workers a Christmas bonus to the threat of global thermonuclear war. You know what? But I still think I like this version better and wish it was around when I was a kid. Oh, yeah? Why is that? Because the version with nuclear weapons in it didn't have a character named Tiny Tim. And that would have saved me from a lot of mean insults directed my way as a child. Tim, that's really dark, and I think you're being super critical. to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear nonproliferation for a living. And I'm excited to be joined today in the virtual podcast studio. No, no, we're in person. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> uh, force of habit since uh, early 2020. No, in person at uh, my usual podcast host Gabe's house. Gabe, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for letting me be at your house, and, and yeah. uh, welcome back. Yeah, thank you. It's good to be back, vaccinated, boosted. Uh, <laughs> yeah, face to face. This is this is it's intense. It's great. I hope the audio recording sounds good because I haven't been operating this mobile equipment for a while. Yeah, we've been setting up for three hours here. It's, yeah, I think we have it just right. Yeah, so if uh, if you're hearing anything, um, we'll 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 dial that in for next time. But hopefully, it sounds good. Well, thanks for for this, Gabe, and for having to for having me here at your your lovely home. It's decorated here for the holidays, for the Christmas holiday. Uh, it's great to share this kind of holiday spirit with you in person. It's December. Your tree is decorated. I see tinsel. I see stockings. You know, it's time to put on our favorite holiday movies. You know, those ones about how we need to be more careful about nuclear weapons and stop being oh. so, you know, curmudgeon and isolation. I thought we were going to, like, watch Elf or something. When you <laughs> teed this up, I was like, oh, we're going to watch Elf this time? Or no, but it's not, not Elf or uh, Christmas Story or any of those heart heartwarming fuzzy movies. But the 1964 movie Carol for Another Christmas, which tells the story of Dan Grudge, former military commander who was involved in the atomic bombings of Japan and later became a successful and rich industrialist brooding in his home on Christmas Eve as we learn of his growing distrust of international engagements and love for nuclear weapons. So, yeah, no, this is totally in line with uh, exactly what I would have expected (laughs) out of you. It flows well because it is pretty much a beat for beat remake of the Ebenezer Scrooge story um, in uh, Christmas Carol. You know, he's visited, Dan uh, Grudge is visited by ghosts of Christmas past, of present, of future, and then a little bonus uh, at the end, which we'll we'll get into here, uh, where he sees uh, what happens if you stop worrying about global affairs and learn to love the bomb hey that's that's from another movie we know about we do and there's a lot of characters here uh played by actors from dr strange love quick context for this movie because you know maybe no one's ever heard of it um and there's a reason for that it was uh only shown once on tv uh back in 1964 it was part of a series of planned movies i think they planned six of them Uh, that were designed for television consumption back in the days, you know, TV movies, big events, uh, you know, every year. But these were designed to promote the United Nations and all of the work that it did 
and the goal was to educate viewers about its work. After October 63, there were a bunch of incidents, you know, some that we know about, like the assassination of JFK in Texas. UN Ambassador Adelaide Stevenson, he was assaulted by anti-UN protesters after delivering kind of a pro-UN Day speech. The American public at that time, like, supported the UN, but politics domestically in the U.S. with people like Barry Goldwater, um, we got into great detail about Barry Goldwater, um, our mutual friend Joel, former podcast host. We did an episode before the 2016 presidential elections where we talked about the the Daisy ad, one of the most famous political ads. Right. Well, that was about Barry Goldwater and all of his love of nuclear weapons uh, and his hatred of the UN. Like, all of this was happening, so there was a sense maybe the American public needs to learn more about what the UN does, and then maybe it'll be people will support it. So these were created, you know, for that purpose. Can, can I just say, we've come such a long way from that to like real housewives of whatever and like Paris Hilton getting married, like the quality. I just can't imagine something like this airing today. It's just such right. a, an anachronistic thing about that speaks to, you know, what television was and kind of what it's become. Even within that context, this movie didn't necessarily do amazingly well. It was meant for consumption on all of the major networks, you know, all three of them back in the day. ABC, NBC, and CBS uh, here in the, in the United States. But only, I think, ABC ultimately showed this. I think CBS dropped out because they were like, oh, we, if we show a pro-UN movie, we have to show an anti-UN movie so that it's all balanced and right. in that. And the NBC said, uh, I don't know, this is really complicated to get approved because of the political sense at the yeah. time. Uh, how complicated you would think is like the idea of, well, the UN has a mission and we like it. Like back then, that was kind of in dispute. So you can understand kind of why they wanted to do this. So only ABC showed the first four of these six movies, and then the final two uh, never made it. So it was shown once, December 28th, 1964, and then not again on TV for 48 years. Wow. Until uh, Turner Classic Movies, TCM, saved the day and broadcasted it in 2012. So I think they, they broadcast it every year as part of like the holiday movie series. I had trouble finding it. I had to go to a, a really sketchy bootleg website and, and had to buy a copy of it. And then since I bought it last year, it's now on YouTube. Yeah. So people can look for it however long it's going to be there. It is available. It's about yeah. 88 minutes. Yeah, I found it on YouTube. The quality is a little bit sketchy. I, I watched it on a fairly large TV, and it, it was really pixelated. But you still got a gist of it. Where did you first hear about this movie? I'm curious. I was looking for holiday-themed nuke movies to do, and I got a lot of like songs about holiday stuff. You know, We covered last year around the holidays um, the weird Al Yankovic song called uh, Christmas at Ground Zero, yeah. which our friend Kevin was on. That was a fun one. Kevin played the banjo for us. It was really great. <laughs> but then I, I couldn't find a lot of movies except for this one. So it, it's known because a lot of talent went into it. Rod Serling, the guy who people know from The Twilight Zone, he wrote this movie. Uh, he, I think it was in partnership with someone else, but he was the main writer for it. Joseph Mankiewicz, uh, who has done a lot of you know big movies. He's won a lot of Oscars for movies like All About Eve and Letters to Three Wives. Um, he even did a 1938 version of A Christmas Carol. He was the director for this movie. It's got a huge, really amazing cast. Uh, people well-known like Peter Sellers in it. You know, Peter Sellers from many characters in Dr. Strangelove. Uh, the main lead of this movie is Sterling Hayden, who plays Dan Grudge. He is the guy who plays General Jack D. Ripper. I mean, they're all terrible people in Dr. Strangelove, but he's the guy who sets off 
um, all of the various events. The guy who's concerned about the Russians fluoridating his water and taking his essence away and all that kind of stuff. So he's the main lead in these two. That's kind of fun to see those two people together. Doctor Strangelove also came out right around the same time. And a bunch of other, you know, very famous people. Robert Shaw, the guy who plays Quint in Jaws, uh, he's in this as Christmas uh, Future. Uh, ben Gazera, uh, who's in this, who plays um, Jackie Treehorn in The Big Lebowski. Um, so a bunch of people are really amazing um, in this film, including cameos from Peter Fonda, who got ultimately got cut. So that's why it's it's in the, the ether if you search for it. But right. it's not a movie that I saw at all growing up or anything. Did you ever hear anything about this? Um, no, I not heard a- at all about this. I was frankly very excited when you told me about it. We, I think we were supposed to do it last year, but we we couldn't get it together in time. But um, I was very excited given the, the Rod Serling kind of connection and everything. But no, I, I had no idea. And I, I don't watch Turner Classic <laughs> movies, so I didn't know that, that this was a thing. Well, it, it was a big deal for the time in the sense that like all of the actors and directors, they could have been making a lot more money doing other things. But they decided this is an important cause. Peter Sellers apparently was only paid 350 bucks instead of his usual fee of $750,000 for a movie, you know, starting there. So people did the film thinking that it was a, a big deal, um, wanting to be able to help the cause of talking about international affairs and the importance of the UN. Now, did people like it? Well, in critics, did they like it? Well, reviews were mixed. I think a lot of the, the critics said that the performances were very good, but the writing uh, wasn't particularly strong. People in the press mocked it for being this particular film as being a little preachy, a little dull. Variety magazine, it, the, the program was generalized to the extreme and ultimately a disappointment. The New York Times said that uh, the movie was pretentious and uh, a wearing exercise, garrulous ineptitude. It's harsh. That is harsh. But, you know, other people liked it, you know, said that maybe it didn't connect well, but it was trying a lot of anti-UN, pro, as you can say, like, you know, far-right groups like the John Birch Society. They tried to do a letter-writing campaign to take this down. Got nominated for two Emmys, at least. The cool thing about it was was that it apparently, like, one in five people saw it, which is pretty big. Yeah. I mean, like, a lot of people saw the movie. It's just that, you know, there wasn't a, a, a clamoring for to show it every year because it didn't get shown for 48 more years. Well, I guess, and just to, you know, I'm thinking more about the context now. I mean, back then, there was just so much less content out there. I mean, right, right now... You could spend like every waking hour and still not get through Netflix and Hulu. I mean, Netflix puts out like five <laughs> Christmas movies that just they right. made with Kurt Russell every yeah. year. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense, I guess, when you think about that it would have more eyes on it. But um, no, I'm 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 not surprised, even for its time. I mean, I mean, you watch Twilight Zone, right? That I don't think that kind of stuff would appeal to a current audience, mm. at least not in that form. But even this, this is like very. We were just talking about this before. It's just very nerdy, very wonky. I mean, if you're into like you, you're into foreign mm-hmm. policy stuff, you'll watch it. But I- I'm I'm not surprised that the general audience had trouble with this one. Well, let's dive into that now. Let's talk through the plot of this. Um, Gabe and I are sitting on a couch, kind of a fireside chat. Like your fireplace isn't going, but I'm going to pretend it is. It will be more of a conversational style of kind of what the stuff we want to cover, but we'll get into the plot of this. We'll get into a few nuclear things that the movie talks a little bit about. Um, But I've got two main questions that are going to be on the front of my mind as we go through this. Uh, One is, what is this movie trying to teach us about the UN, its, its history, and its mission that it sees itself in terms of nuclear arms control and nuclear disarmament? And secondly, 
do you think, Gabe, that this uh, Christmas setting either helps or hurts the story? And was it successful after you saw it to thinking that the UN is great and, you know, should be involved in more? Or did you ultimately think, uh, I'm going to call up my friend John Bolton and, and uh, find out which floors of the UN to take a, a take apart? Well, and I, I mean, I think those are great themes. And, and for me, it, it, the question I kept coming to as well was just how does this apply to where we are right now? Because mm-hmm. we've had this renewed skepticism of kind of international agreements, you know, since 2016 or so. And a lot of this, you know, America first versus that. I, to me, it'll be interesting to kind of explore how this relates to some of the things we're grappling with today, because I think it is really relevant, actually. Indeed. Uh, so yeah, dive right into it here. Um, as usual, spoiler warning, as Gabe and I start to warm up to the imaginary fire uh, that's here, um, and we'll start to chat about the plot, you know, spoiler warning, uh, if you haven't seen this movie, I don't think it's necessary to watch it, because we'll get into the details of it, but it is available, and the score is pretty good. Um, if you if you Google the, the a Carol for Another Christmas score, you get... Uh, amazing orchestral it's really beautiful stuff yeah but spoiler alerts if if you do want to watch it go watch it now and then 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 come back and listen here if you've seen any of the thousands of versions of a christmas carol none of this will be surprised to you Um, including the fact that it opens on christmas eve the movie starts with like a montage of like artwork like christmas artwork and stuff um very traditional you know christmas activities stuff all the things that could have been painted by uh, maybe not Norman Rockwell, but a Norman Rockwell-esque. We eventually turn to real, you know, life stuff, and we are in a mansion, a really nice place. It's Christmas Eve. It's in 1960, early 1960s, and we meet a, a very wealthy older man named Dan Grudge. He's standing in a room. It's dark. He's brooding. He's listening to a, a record player playing some music, and he's looking at, like, on a wall, a bunch of war medals. And you can see a mix of, of sadness and anger in his face. And this is the guy who, uh, you know, Sterling Hayden, who played General Jack T. Ripper. So immediately I'm on board because uh, I forgot that he was in this movie. And I see him in this and I go, oh, that's who this is. Yeah. Whatever this is, whatever, whoever this movie goes You're to, hooked. I'm yeah. hooked. <laughs> um, it, we've already started to see a little bit of weirdness because – he turns the record player off. He goes to leave the room, but the music starts playing right. again. He turns around, and it's, the record's not moving. Yeah. But he heard the sound. But, you know, he's in his own thoughts and doesn't think anything like it. And the song's very – it's that uh, When I Come Marching Home, which the first line is like, don't go under the apple tree or something, which it sounds kind of like a period-era thing. I, n- I actually didn't know, like, that song is about, you know, war and, like, coming back. And um, so you already know this is going to be – they're already hitting you with the, the foreign policy stuff. Well, the, the theme song to this podcast and the theme song to – if you had a, if it had a theme to Dr. Strangelove is – Johnny comes marching home. Immediately, I'm just like, guys, is this movie written for me? Like, what are you doing here? (laughs) Either way, there's something weird going on here. But um, this guy who, you know, General, um, I don't know if he was a general, but Dan Grudge, um, he gets a visitor. Who who comes to knocking on his door on Christmas Eve? It's his his nephew, because everyone, this is like normal. Your nephew always (laughs) pops in on Christmas Eve to talk about... Uh, a professor. I guess the, the, it's, it seems like the nephew is a professor at a university mm-hmm. and is there to talk business on Christmas Eve, of course, about a professor, um, Jack Harris, who was supposed to participate in some cultural exchange program. He was going to go to to Poland, which is where my dad's from. Mm-hmm. So this like hit for me a little bit, and uh, and there was going to be a Polish professor who was going to come to the U.S. who was going to be a cultural exchange. Of course, 
Poland part of the Eastern Bloc at that time, communist country, and the, the, the nephew is there to ask his uncle, uh, Grudge, why he was part of some decision to cut this off. Get smart, boy. We've been digging his kind out of the woodwork for years. You don't really expect me to be a party to inviting one of them in here now, do you? Ah, <laughs> no. Now he stays on his side of the fence and Harris stays on ours. Get used to the idea. Yeah, and, and Grudge kind of just, uh, I guess, you know, holds, holds a grudge against international affairs and says, you know, no, we need to stay on our side of the fence. They need to stay on their side of the fence. And, you know, fence could in this situation could be a curtain made of iron. You know, uh, you stay on your side. I stay on mine. Don't interfere with anyone else. Like we don't I don't know who this professor from Poland would that would come here, but it wouldn't do any good. It's only going to give them more opportunities to infect us. And he basically just decides, no, no, absolutely not. Not going to support this. He says he's in no mood for the brotherhood of man. They get into this back and forth about, you know, whether or not the world can survive with these kinds of fences up anymore. And that's starting to hint at the introduction of nuclear weapons into this. Like, can we survive another round of, like, this kind of conflict when these stakes are not just, yeah, as awful as World War II was and as awful as World War One and all of those conflicts were, you know, now if we do it again, there's nuclear weapons involved. Can we really afford to do this? This is the argument that Nephew makes, and, and Uncle doesn't care. Uncle yeah. says, no, forget this, forget the needy, tell the needy that they need to help themselves. Well, get used to this idea, Uncle. There are certain fences the world can no longer afford. Quite a wall through Berlin, I've heard, pal. There's only one side I'm on, first, last, and always, our side. Don't you ever forget that and spread it around. I want all the members of your various domestic and international orders of the bleeding heart to know precisely where Daniel Grudge stands. Because anytime you and or one of your fuzzy fellow do-gooders tries to get me or friends of mine or my city, state, or my country involved in any of your so-called causes, then I intend to be there every time with a body block that'll throw all of you flat on your involved butts elements there of, of scrooge you know ebenezer scrooge in the sense like i'm not going to provide you know money for these charitable activities anymore but also he starts making points about like hey you know what for, forget even the idea of like talking in peace uh he talks about why you know nuclear weapons um he loves those so much that we need to be investing not in people anymore he needs to be investing into more powerful and faster missiles and heavier heavy bombers and these are the things he says that are going to be more useful for peace than any sort of debate society or arms control agreement or handouts and if you have this overpowering concern for everybody everywhere in the world here's your answer just you put your effort sweat and faith into developing the fastest bombers and the most powerful missiles on earth They'll provide a lot more security for our young and for the rest of the world's young than all your debating societies, forums, treaties, pacts, and other forms of surrender and handout. That's quite an answer, Uncle Dan, for today. But what about tomorrow? Of course, you'll grant all other nations an equal right to put their faith and sweat and effort in trying to make their bombs faster and more powerful than ours. Just let them try it. Each behind its own fence. Each capable, eventually, of destroying everything and everybody else and each uninvolved with the other. Uninvolved with us? I'll settle for that. Just let them know we have the biggest and the fastest. Just let them know we're not too chicken to use them. And I think his nephew kind of questions, like, well, where does this lead us? You know, they're, they're going to catch up. They're going to do more. And he's, you know, he says, well, not if we stay ahead. So it's already getting into, like, heavy themes of, you know, mutually assured destruction and game theory and all this. But to me, I mean, what was interesting was it already tees up 
it's clear that he has some very influential role grudge does in society. I mean, he has right. the mansion and everything, but he's, he's pulling strings. So I think it sets it up as a, um, a popular, he's almost like an analog for this popular worldview among, you know, influential people in, in American society at the time. Well, apparently the, the character's name was supposed to be something that was a little bit closer to Barry Goldwater I think um, his first name was supposed to have a Benjamin or something. Yeah, like yeah. the letter B. So yeah. the initials would be BG, um, like Barry Goldwater. So there's that element there. But it's also very clear too that he he's holding on to some sort of like inspiring event that makes him hate the idea of of sending Americans abroad and whether it's for war or for just meddling, what he would call in yeah. international affairs. And we learn that it's because of his son. Like 20 years ago. Uh, in World War Two, his son was killed. His son Marley. So instead of um, Marley in the traditional Christmas story or Christmas Carol story of being like the bus- the old business partner yeah. who was an like like Scrooge, you know, someone who was miserly with his money and hated people and worked really hard and then ultimately like died and yeah. now is haunting people. Yep. Um, instead of that, uh, it's the son, and the son seems to be a fine person. He seems to be the one that was going to be played by Peter Fonda. So. Peter Fonda's scenes were cut, but you see the like a painting oh, of the Fonda. sun. It's it's a Peter Fonda. Um, it's like that movie uh, where Steven Seagal was in it for like two minutes. <laughs> was it hard time? There was some movie that was featured as Steven Seagal being in this movie, and he's like killed within like oh. two minutes into it. <laughs> anyway, that sounds about right. And I guess this is why the idea he was brooding. I guess this is what he must have been brooding over. Probably looking over the medals of his son. The character so far. I, I'm in. I'm in. I'm on board with this. Like the character is is well rounded in the sense. Like it's maybe is not the kind of stuff that you would normally would argue with your family about on Christmas Eve. But it's his motivating thing. Like he's probably had these arguments with people before. He's he's arguing with himself. You know, brooding in, in a dark, quiet room with uh, magic uh, jukebox and magic record players and stuff. To me, at least, I know who this character is. I know where he's coming from. Yeah, I think great setup. It gets even more interesting. Now is where we get into kind of the Christmas carol part of it. We have all the character development done, and things start to get spooky. So, like, uh, the doors start closing on their own in the house. Uh, smoke appears, and, and all of a sudden, he's no longer in his house, but he's on this naval ship in 1918. It's all foggy. You can't really tell at first, and then you know it becomes clear he's on this ship. And there's a bunch of caskets on the ship with different flags. You see this this guy appear, and this turns out to be the, the ghost of Christmas past. And he starts talking, and it becomes clear that he is on this convoy, or whatever the ship version, fleet, armada mm-hmm. of ships that are taking back the the dead from from World War One and you know implied all these like other major global conflicts. The ghost of Christmas past is one of those soldiers and you know starts engaging with grudge about all of this. I'm all of them. I'm the one who rallied around the flag. Any flag. All flags. See what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no names and all names, huh? I haven't heard that one since the radio programs in the thirties. Your name is uh, Joe, Tony, Izzy, Pat, all one and the same. America the melting pot, right? Wrong. Who said only America's pot? I'm the dead, all the dead. We're quite a stew, you'll have to admit. Still, nameless as I am, I've got a terrific title. The Ghost of Christmas Past. 
Has that hit you? It doesn't. I, I love this performance. Um, I, I think I forget the actor's name, but its last name is Lawrence, and he's he's great. Like he's just he's you meet him, and he's like playing the harmonica. Who are you? Who are these people in these caskets? And yeah, as you said, you know it's everybody. It's every soldier that's ever died in any conflict anywhere. Well, that as a point can inspire someone to think about that differently. And for Dan, it's his you know uh, hatred of international affairs. Like why every twenty years do we seem to have a conflict where we're you know, sending um, our, our, our sons and fathers and others to kill um, people abroad and then, and then get killed. And takeaway from that is, no, let's never do this again. Let's just keep on our own. And the ghost of Christmas past is like, well, war, they talk about war is a disease. It's a contagious disease. And, you know, we need to find ways to stamp it out. And his solution for that is not to put up fences and close the United States off. It's to talk. War is also a contagious disease, Mr. G. And until we can stamp it out... Nobody, nobody ever found a way to do that. Right. But is that any reason to stop trying? The only chance to keep this particular disease from spreading is to keep talking. So long as you talk, you don't fight. Simple. Look, I bump a guy in the street. He bumps me. We stand there, we argue. He gives me lip, I give him lip. But when we stop talking... We start swinging, and then we bleed. Then we got problems, like winding up dead. So, and he says, you know, if these troops, if they didn't die abroad protecting democracy, they would be dead in their backyard when people would be come to their shore. So it's not a pacifist argument, but it's the idea if we have to go abroad, but we should do everything we can to avoid it, and we should be talking. So hint, hint where are places that people can talk about these kinds of stuff, the UN. And that's kind of the point of, yeah. of this a little bit here. But I, I I saw this dynamic here really, really interesting. Yeah, and I thought that it was good because it there is this emotional undertone with the caskets in the background, and you know he sees other ships in the distance. You see ghostly images of soldiers in all kinds of different military you know outfits and garb everywhere. But even with this background, I mean, they're still having a principled. You know, it's an argument on. Um, it, it's a debate really on on principles. So it's just inter- It was interesting to have that kind of backdrop, and Grudge doesn't kind of back down right away, and right. you know he's talking to this dead soul. He's kind of like confronting him which i thought was very interesting and it showed some level of you know that side being aware of the kind of emotional argument but still you know legitimately seeing this path as the one that will kind of save the most lives and be in america's interest and i think where the argument for me really turned in favor of of the ghost of christmas past was once dan was saying you know we need to put up our fences we need to stay on this side of the ocean you know forget all this stuff happening well, the ghost of Christmas past says, you know, hey, guess what? That idea of yours belongs in the past because with the role and the introduction of nuclear weapons, particularly those that can be delivered within, you know, 30 minutes via a missile or a heavy bomber that, you know, for some reason ignores fences or a submarine, you know, these things that like the ocean is no longer this expansive protection. Right. It's a little river is what he says. And hey, listen to me. Nobody. Nobody, mortal man or dressed up ghost, can convince me that every time there's a war, we have to step in and finish it. The next one, the next one, we don't bring up the bucket. We stay home. We stay on On our our side side of the fence. (laughs) Talk about your old time radio shows. Seems to me I heard that one before too. Hey, you wanna know something, pal? That ocean you call a fence keeps nothing out anymore, except fish. 
It's a lousy stream of water now. It's about as wide as a ditch. Well, a couple of supersonic bombers can spit over it. And I see you be able to leave it behind. You don't want to get involved. Sport, you got a job ahead of you. You really got a job. You got to disinvent the airplane, and the missile, and the submarine, and a little old thing called the bomb. You don't want to get involved, you got to give back the 20th century. But isolation? I got news. They went out with gaslight and 50 cent steaks. It's for the dinosaurs, isolation. And closing your eyes, that's for sleeping. Also, at certain times, it, it leads to dying. I thought that was a really interesting point there, and that's certainly the point that my uh, arms control and proliferation community makes, that all of people's thinking about war and, and conflict, you have to always put that into the f- forefront is, well, everything's a little bit different now with nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons are not just big bombs. They're bombs that uh, can be delivered fairly quickly, and in the fog of war, it's pretty dangerous to have nuclear weapons involved in this mix because any sort of inadvertent choice or accidental uh, launch or misinformation the stakes are much higher than they were in the past. Well, and that kind of takes us into the next destination that the ghost of Christmas past brings him to, which is Hiroshima in September 1945 after the bomb dropped. You know, Dan's in there um, driving through the, I won't say rubble, it's like totally decimated like hellscape uh, with uh, with another uh, young woman, Lieutenant Gibson, which I thought was very interesting for the mm-hmm. time because a lot of these military movies it's all men and to have a, a young woman that that must have been a, a very interesting casting choice for the time something that would would have been i think unusual but they're surveying the the destruction after the bomb i guess this is when he was in the navy in here what's in there a place you should remember a place uh, a foreign place you had a feeling about one time well maybe you just don't remember too good not only where you've been even what you say, like, let them know we're not too chicken to use that bomb. They already know that, Mr. Grudge. And they meet a Japanese doctor who is taking care of uh, a bunch of wounded children. And, I mean, it's pretty brutal. You know, they hear this this beautiful singing, and it sounds really nice, and then you learn that the children have been horrendously disfigured. Their, their faces have been, like, totally destroyed. They're under bandages under this, like, blanket, and it's really... I mean, really grisly, and the young woman, Lieutenant Gibson, she's really having trouble uh, with this, but, you know, Dan is is talking about basically justifying it in the face of all this. Again, there's this very emotional thing, and he's staying strong in his position. It's about simple, it's yeah. simple arithmetic, right? Yep. Like, we, went, we needed to drop the bomb because... If we didn't, more Americans' lives would have been killed. Maybe even more Japanese would have been killed. So he's just very much, uh, this is a, a clear, obvious choice. I'm not concerned with it. And he says to Lieutenant Gibson, maybe you shouldn't be concerned with it either. Sympathize all you want, Lieutenant, but keep your perspective. The President of the United States found it necessary to drop that bomb because there would have been 500,000 American casualties and a couple of million Japanese dead had he not dropped it. Harsh as it may sound, in my book, that makes simple arithmetic. Commander, I wouldn't debate military planning with you. I'm just suggesting that we are standing in the middle of what was once a city, where on one given morning, 100,000 people were killed. People, Commander, doesn't that suggest to you that from this second on, if the world ever decided to go to war again, it could kill itself off in a couple of afternoons? Doesn't it suggest, sir, that maybe war is obsolete now? Just do me one favor, would you please, Commander? Don't call it arithmetic anymore. The image that Dan remembers is very sterilized, except for the people, the kids that he sees, because all of the bodies have been removed. So the, he's seen 
post-conflict, but he's not seen the, the things that you would see if you watched um, the movie you know, Grave of Fireflies, which yeah. is a movie that I recommend everybody watch at least once that shows it's about firebombing of, of Japan, but it's it shows it, it happening to families and stuff. And if you were to pause that movie and, and, and fast forward to like several days later, you would see a much more sterilized version of the situation. And that's what Dan remembers. And he's kind of forgetting that when he makes this point later on about, well, let's just build faster weapons and more powerful nuclear weapons and this will keep the peace and kind of forgets like what the implications of that was when that what he what he saw and this is the first time in the movie we're introduced to this idea i think of the impact of all this on the next generation um, right. there's a scene where the uh, there's a thunderstorm coming through and thunder and th- there's there's some kid there who's not as badly uh, disfigured and he just like starts crying he hugs grudge at, because he's looking for someone to protect him from thunder because he's you know been traumatized shell shocked he associates the thunder with the next bomber yeah and it's like the implication of, well we we've you know messed up this this next generation of you know of kids who should be like living their lives happy and instead are thinking about war and the the point that lieutenant gibson makes to dan is like look even if you're right like this needed to happen or whatever you justify this with can we at least stop calling it simple arithmetic? And I think that's really important because people who often think about, you know, nuclear weapons in the terms of like, well, let's calculate uh, mega death. Let's calculate how how if we had these kinds of silos and if we were attacked first, maybe we would lose, you know, this many. Uh, but it's always in these statistics that forget what the ultimate impact of this is on people, on children, on people's lives. Um, the kinds of stuff that we try to cover on the podcast that I think some films do a great job with and other ones uh, aren't particularly great with. And this is all the kinds of stuff that Lieutenant Gibson is trying to get to. And I think Dan, in the past, uh, has no – none of this is getting through to him. He clearly forgot yeah. about it as, yeah. he, as he grew older. But current Dan seems to be going through to him a little bit. Uh, but he's sent to his next location, cause, right? Because we can't just stay with Ghost of Christmas Past forever. We have to go – uh, to the present. Right. Where are we at now? Hand him off to his uh, new location, which is his own back in the mansion. Um, and specifically the dining room, there's this table that's set for this like epic, you know, Christmas feast that could probably feed like 20 people. Mm-hmm. But instead, there's just the ghost of Christmas present. He's sitting there alone, eating, gorging himself uh, off of this huge meal. And, you know, he, he it's really like this, this display of gluttony and you know he's he's talking about an, an image of the human race that is uh like full and warm and content he says that's who he is yeah, yeah but but also he he's also this dual person that is also hungry and cold and there's a bell that rings and it's a, kind of a light shines next to the table and there's a group of starving people at a at a camp for displaced persons and it's it's like this very visceral image of you know the haves um people who have plenty to eat more than enough and then the have-nots people who are like you know suffering and cold this christmas and this is where dan says why would you where would you eat like that yeah. with this meal when there are people right next to you they're here they can see this why would you do any of these things and, and the ghost of christmas presents like laughs at that and then like clicks another bell and they disappear and he's like okay so is it okay now, now that they're no longer in sight? And this gets to this point earlier that Dan was making, you know, forget the needy, they need to help themselves, I'm on my own, and tries to cause Dan to reflect on, well, how isolated can I really be? How do I think about the the benefits that I have versus those that have nothing? Can I help them? And Dan starts to, you know, really break down a little bit here. Like, 
how do I decide like when to help and when not to help? And the ghost of Christmas uh, present says, you know, look, Dan, you have a very selective morality. You choose when to care and when to self-isolate. And it's really a fascinating thing, you know, back and forth. I also love this actor a lot, too, that plays the ghost of Christmas present. For anyone who's watched the uh, Tim Burton Batman movies uh, from the 80s and early 90s, he plays Commissioner Gordon. He's a great character actor. But the point I think that the ghost of Christmas present is trying to make to Dan is, look, you're a part of the human race. We need to think about humanity not no longer in these kind of abstract terms. Uh, and it really is not about nuclear weapons. It's about people. And it, funny enough, uh, he mentions things like, well, there's 10 plus million people in the world. They need food and they need vaccines. Yep. Uh, so very, very timely for these days. And he says, look, helping them helps the human race and does nothing desecrate the American flag or opens up your country to tyranny. Like helping these individuals doesn't do anything but help the human race. And you can't simply like close off your mindset, put up a fence and say, well, whatever's on the other side of that fence, we can just, you know, ignore and we can help our own, our own people. Like you can do both. That's kind of what the point that Christmas present is making. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I I think it's, it's really powerful because you start to see his, he's very like, uh, grudge is very calm and collected in the last scene and this mm-hmm. is where it starts to unravel like you said and at the end he just can't like take it he can't take seeing these people and being confronted with these arguments and he just starts running and seems like he's just like r- can't escape the scene he's coming up against the fence and he just keeps running but at one point he's becomes he's in the fence now. yeah yeah, yeah. Th- right that's right exactly yeah thankfully he doesn't have to run too much longer because he runs into the next ghost ghost of christmas future um robert shaw who played quint from jaws by the way another nuclear movie people don't you know know that we've covered this on the podcast because there's a lot of famous scenes where quint from jaws was aboard the uss indianapolis which was a ship in real life who brought the some of the parts for the atomic bombs uh, used against Japan. It's all connected. With Tim Westmeyer, every movie is a nuclear <laughs> movie. What was the Ghost of Christmas future up to? So uh, brings him to his own town in the future, the city hall. But the whole city has just been destroyed, and it's been done by a, a nuclear war. There's no no more clocks, no more electricity, you know, no more people other than kind of nomad nomads. But it, it's basically a you know a wasteland of what his his former you know bustling town was. People eventually decided they needed didn't need to talk to each other anymore. So a town hall where you normally bring people together to discuss various you know major issues affecting your town. They didn't need to talk to each other anymore, and they say, well, you know, warfare, atomic science, atomic weapons. They filled the silence. Yeah, and you know, there's no. It's left purposely vague in terms of. You know, when exactly does this happen? How exactly does it happen? The ghost just says, oh, it happened on Doomsday. And, mm-hmm. you know, we don't really know that. It's unclear about who actually started it. But I think the point there is it doesn't really matter, right? It, right. It's, it, if it happens, that's the problem. And Grudge is wondering if, if, you know, the UN or somebody else was, was a voice of reason. But the idea is that, you know, everyone stopped talking, like the yeah. Ghost of Christmas Past said. And everyone... people, people started to leave the UN, is what the Ghost of Christmas Future said. It was walked out by one country and then by another. Um, you know, maybe Barry Goldwater was elected, and and he decided that you know, was one of his platforms was let's get out of the UN. The John Birch Society won, and all of these things kind of collapsed, and we're back to a situation where people no longer talk to each other. You're in the future, Mister Grudge. The future, the world's future. What do you think of the old neighborhood? Our town hall. But what could have done this? What happened here? There grew to be less and less need for a meeting place, for a platform for debate. 
The American town hall, you will remember, Mr. Grouch, was a microcosm of all the meeting halls of the world. Places where men could talk it over. It seems we reached a moment in time when talk became superfluous. So now your town hall is past tense. There was a war. A dandy. When? When? On doomsday. We don't have dates now, but that's how it's remembered. The exact hour hardly matters, does it? It seems at a given moment we thought that they'd drop some bombs, or they thought we'd drop some bombs. Anyway, somebody thought somebody had dropped some bombs. By then, of course, everybody had the bomb. They'd all been wanting it, you remember? It got so with no controls that nobody was really anybody if they didn't have the bomb. What you see before you, Mr. Grudge, is a tiny part of a big, round, radioactive mud-burying ground. But uh, as the movie says, is like the voices of hate and stupidity, they spoke up, you know, louder, and that's all we heard until, you know, doomsday. Yeah. But then we hear more voices, right, off in the distance, coming into the, the rubble. Yeah, there's this big, uh, this, and this was my favorite part of it. It starts to get really bizarre. There's, there's this Very surreal. Yeah. yeah, there's this big crowd of people who are, you know, kind of in tatters, and, the, you know, they're, they're obviously living in this post-apocalyptic reality. And they come in with a marching band, and it has this, like, festive atmosphere, and everyone's kind of gathering. And there is uh, the arrival of somebody dressed like a pilgrim, but they have a <laughs> cowboy hat, jeweled with the word me on it and uh, is carried in on this chair and his name is the Imperial Me. I am the Imperial Me and this is the non-government of the Me people. Played by Peter Sellers, another... Yep. In Doctor Strange, though, he played like most people. He was meant to play even more, but he uh, got hurt and couldn't use his foot for a while. In Doctor Strange, though, he plays, you know... Uh, Mandrake, who's the British officer, yep. he plays Doctor Strangelove yeah. himself, um, and he also plays the President of the United States, President Merkin, which is one of the... <laughs> I can't wait till we cover this movie on the podcast. It's probably going to be like a five-part episode. I will I will hold all my, my, my thoughts about Doctor Strangelove. Well, Strange so Love. he's... I mean, I, and, you know, he's pretty wacky in, in Doctor Strangelove, and he's, he's a pretty wacky character here, this very over-the-top ruler who's starts talking in a very kind of exalted language about how he rules the gov- the non-government of the me people and he warns them about others who are out there who want to come and talk about you know their common problems and their solutions but he says that it's it's just a waste of time and that they should only be concerned about the me and the other people are there to like take away that that raw individualism and and only the the powerful wins out and there's no such thing as the us it's just me 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 so it's they don't come out in so many words and say that they want to take us over (laughs) they're too clever for that that's what they want they want to take over us individual me and if we let them seep in here from down yonder and cross river if we let these do-gooders these bleeding hearts propagate their insidious doctrine of involvement among us, then, my dear friend, my beloved me, we's in trouble. Deep, deep trouble. You know, he's he's talking in this very strange way, but obviously talking about the commentary on the selfishness of the, the isolationists, the 
and and just the absurd the ultimate absurdity of that position that we live in a society and you know being in a society while talking about i'm the only one that matters how does how does that work you know george costanza's worst nightmare you know we live in a society <laughs> but this is a society of me you know we're living in a society uh but we do meet somebody that we know of um so we know this didn't take place you know it's surrealist whatever but uh it didn't take place so far in the distant future because dan's butler a character that we meet him and his um and his cook we meet charles the butler and ruby the cook um earlier in the film very briefly charles he's there with with rudy and he shows up and he tries to calm the the crowd that's chanting me 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 and he wants the crowd to talk to these other people and says, look, we've got all these problems. We're starving. We can work together, bring together what humanity is that's left. And everyone really just laughs him off, basically. They're all insane with the words from the Imperial Me. And the Imperial Me charges him with treason. The treasonous crime of involvement and subversion of the individual. He starts talking with his, uh, his Texas twang. He says, you know, each behind his own fence. Each behind his own barricade. Follow me, my people, my loved ones, to the perfect society, the civilization of I. Charles doesn't make any headway here, right? Doesn't yeah. end well for him. No, he. I mean, he tries to escape. He ends up on this kind of ledge, and the crowd is chanting for him to jump and to his death. And you know, he kind of he's very conflicted. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't. He doesn't want to jump. He wants to make his last stand. But it's ended because there's this child who grabs a gun from a box labeled "Just Like Daddy." And, and ends up shooting Charles, but w really creepily, he's, he has this kind of smirk and smile on his face when he does it. It's, yeah. it's pretty dark. Especially uh, these days, uh, yeah. with, with children yeah. and oh, access to yeah. guns. And Pearl Me talks about the next phase of his plan. Let's go out there. Let's kill all of these other people, anyone who thinks not like them. And he says, you know what? The phase three of this will be, we need to kill off each other. Because that way there'll be just one person left, and that one person will be able to rule the ultimate civilization of I. Yep. That's the only way to have it if there's nobody else. So it's, it kind of takes it to its logical end. But, it, I mean, it's so, um, you know, all this is playing out, the um, the ghost and uh, and Grudge are kind of being silent. And then, then they start talking, and, and the ghost of Christmas Future says that this was obvious once Hiroshima happened. It was almost inevitable. Rubble and madness. Rubble and madness. I can't imagine why you're surprised. When the first bomb dropped on Hiroshima, the fate of man could have been predicted by a cut-rate gypsy. The ultimate garden of Eden. Planted by man, cultivated by his weapons, and irrigated by his blood. And brought to fruition by his prejudices and his hate. Grudge is asking, like, is similar to the original Christmas Carol, is this the world as it must be or as it might be? Do we have the power to change this? You know, he and he keeps asking, you know, what happens to what happened to me in this? You know, where was I in this? And uh, the ghost doesn't answer and kind of leaves, so there's no there's no conclusion. And uh, and Grudge kind of magically, just as magically mm -hmm. as he left, magically returns to his you know ridiculously large mansion and back to kind of real world. So he like passes. He like it seems like he was passed out, and he was he wakes up in his study. His butler comes over and says, "Oh, I didn't." Uh, didn't notice you uh, going up to your room last night. Is everything okay? And 
he's like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm good. Uh, please make my breakfast. And so they go and makes his breakfast. And his nephew comes to the house and says, hey, you phoned me at 3 a.m. last night. You know, he got a 3 a.m. phone call, which is always kind of fun in the world of nuclear weapons about 3 a.m. phone calls, uh, about dangers and what may be happening. He called me at 3 a.m., you know, please come over to the house. And he, Dan apologizes. He says, oh, oh yeah, I must have called. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, he doesn't really say anything other than that other than to say that he apologized yeah he never says like i'm gonna help you with your right your Poland problem pro- exactly yeah. uh, but anyways he gets interrupted by a radio program that's listening where he's listening to his radio program of various carolers and he learns oh that's a un program where kids sing christmas songs in their native languages and that's it's it it harkens back to the scene he saw with the ghost of christmas present because some of the kids in the displaced camp were singing Christmas songs and holiday songs uh, from their own individual languages and things. Well, Dan mentions, you know, when he hears this, he says, you know what, maybe the uh, the UN's not the right solution, not the one I would choose, but it's the only one we have now. And he says, as long as there's children, there is hope. And he says, no man is an island. Involvement needs to happen. Yeah, and that's kind of, he kind of like talks a little bit about that. He wishes his nephew uh, a good day. And then goes into the kitchen with Charles, uh, his butler, and Ruby, the cook, and decides, I'm going to have coffee in here while he's listening to Christmas music playing. I uh, thought I'd have my coffee in here this morning. Yeah, and it seems like it's you know unusual that he's usually isolated in his own thing. Mm-hmm. He's meeting with his... His cook and, and butler, who are people of color, I'm I'm assuming that had some little you know little thing in here on on that, especially given the civil rights stuff at the time. But so that's the movie. Yeah, yeah. it was, and it was very interesting at the end. I thinking this is one thing that differs from Christmas Cow because yeah. Scrooge is kind of like instantly like he's alive and he's like he's. He's just overcome with joy. A grudge is very, still very curmudgeon a little bit, but he's softened just a little bit. It just moved him ever so slightly. There's there's no scene of, uh, dare I say, uh, a Tiny Tim moment um, where there's someone says, you know, what is it? Uh, God bless us, everyone. Yeah, no. Right? There's no that moment where he realizes, oh, my dad's going to get a, a bonus. He's going to yeah. get paid. All the things that Ebenezer decides to start to spend his money to help out others. None of that happens. Yeah. It's just a... A quiet moment. You're right. He no longer self-isolates in the study. Uh, he's going to eat with people. He's going to listen to a, a UN program. Maybe over breakfast and eggs, he'll decide to place a phone call with the university. Maybe he'll do something about promoting the UN. Maybe try to pull back on the arms race. We don't know because it's that Act 3, you know, Act 3.5 that we don't know what the next steps yeah. are going to be. So it is very Rod Serling. The, these his stories will often be very preachy, but they'll end not entirely clear of like what people are going to do. But we learned a message from it, so the viewer gets to take something away from it. But not all of the characters probably are always clear about what their next steps are going to be. But it's it's a thinker. It's meant for us to think, which is everybody what they love to do on Christmas when they watch a holiday movie, right? Is is to think and reflect. Well, and I I have a, a vision of you, uh, Tim, on on Christmas morning, you know, sitting by the radio and listening to UN broadcasts <laughs> and kind of pondering uh, what you're going to do to to you. You saw my Spotify Wrapped. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> That's the movie. That's uh. The nuke story stuff. I've got a, a few interesting points that I wanted to talk a little bit about that kind of come from the movie, like my reflections of what they're trying to get into here. But there's not a lot to 
quote-unquote nitpick. Like, it's not, one, the holidays. It's the holiday season. I shouldn't be doing that anyways. But it's not really the point of the movie. It doesn't really get into any of these levels of detail that would require um, any of that, except for... I thought it was interesting because they, they talk a lot about, you know, the U, the UN and the role that the UN plays in, in arms control and, and nuclear issues. The one thing that I've learned when I was first starting to study this stuff that was so interesting was how much the United Nations was involved very early on when there was, we were very early in, in the atomic age where the United States had nuclear weapons, the British were close, but the Russians hadn't had them just yet. But it was a sense of like, the genie is out of the bottle, but what can we do about it? Right. As opposed to today when there's as many nuclear arms countries as there are, depending on which countries you decide to count, we're in a, a situation where it's much harder to see where we'll ultimately get to a world where there's no world of no nuclear weapons, if that's possible. I hope so. Right. But at this point, maybe we could. If not going peacefully, maybe we can jam the, the genie in the bottle and, and cork it. And the idea that people had was the cork could be the United Nations. It's international control over the nuclear science, nuclear weapons, fissile material. Because if you don't have fissile material, you can't build a nuclear weapon. So that was the, the idea here. And a lot of people put a lot of thought into this. It got to the point, too, in, in 1946, the UN General Assembly had voted to create the Atomic Energy Commission to assist with the control of atomic energy. And the goal was ultimately the reduction of nuclear weapons. So this is what ultimately became things like the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency today, that's involved with uh, international safeguards when it comes to, if you have a civilian nuclear energy program, there are certain things that you're required to do as a member of the UN, as a member of the, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which was ultimately went into force in 1970. Like, if you want a nuclear energy program and you want to be seen as someone who's not, like, a pariah on the world, you put your nuclear energy program under these safeguards, and there's, like, various inspection regimes that go into place. You need to have certain kinds of monitoring. Uh, You have UN inspectors that come in, and they've gotten pretty good at being able to say, like, this is a civilian program, and if we get to a certain point, it becomes too close to a military program, and there's all kinds of verification techniques. So this kind of came out of that world, but even more related to nuclear weapons, there was various initiatives from some of the atomic weapon scientists involved in the Manhattan Project. People like Oppenheimer, when also, by the way, gave. I've learned recently Christopher Nolan is making a Oppenheimer biopic movie Uh-oh. starring Chris, uh, Cillian Murphy and others. Get, yeah, get ready. This I'm very excited be, for this. You're, you're going to disappear for like a month while you just watch it over and over. It's going to be, yeah, hopefully COVID's <laughs> done by that point because I'll be just living in the theater watching yep. it. There were people that were involved, uh, scientists that were trying to, they had a number of uh, studies and petitions that were done. This resulted in something called the Atchison Lilienthal Report in 1946. This was something that said, you know what the solution for this might be? Putting nuclear material in control of an international body like the UN. And this eventually became called the Baruch Plan by uh, one of the elder statesmen involved in a lot of international diplomacy, Bernard Baruch. He was someone who worked for a variety of American presidents uh, ever since World War I. He had a big speech to the UN, to this Atomic Energy Commission in 1946 in June. And he said, here's the plan. We're going to establish an international body. This will, along the lines of this Atchison-Lilienthal report, they're going to control nuclear activities that are dangerous to world security. Uh, we're going to license and inspect all versions of atomic science. We're going to make sure that there are no more bombs being built. All existing bombs need to be destroyed. 
this was 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 pretty intense. And 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 Baruch called this, you know, his speech, the last best hope of Earth. If we don't do this, the solution is we all build bombs, and we decide everybody needs to do this. But this is our last chance. And as you can imagine, this was not particularly welcomed by either the Soviet Union, who's at that time was a non-nuclear weapon state, but they were a veto member of the UN, and they said, nope, uh, we need to first get rid of atomic weapons, then establish the international authority. And the United States said, no, thank you. We want to kind of maintain our atomic monopoly. The Russians always figured this was what was going to happen. The United States said, no, we're going to rely on nuclear weapons to deter and prevent the Russians from taking over, you know, the, the Cold War. So this didn't get too far, despite the fact there was this debate. No one really advanced this very much further until the Soviet Union abstained from the 1946 in December vote, December 31st. So, geez, again, timely right around the holidays, none of this proceeded very far. Dan seems to hate all of this stuff, and it wasn't a Pacific Arms Control Agreement, but I just thought that's important for the context for all this stuff and the role of the UN, because the UN does more than just nuclear weapons. I'm glad the movie didn't get into the weeds of it, because it was already a pretty intense intellectual discussion. Yeah. Uh, that context there was what I was reflecting on when I watched the film. Yeah, to the, the lay viewer of the program, it... it... The idea wasn't so much, oh, what's the correct path and right. you know, how do we hammer out the details, but just should we do this or, or not? Should we have some sort of international framework? And I guess it's interesting to hear you talk about these efforts in the you know mid to late 1940s because sitting here in 2021, we know the world was not destroyed. It, it's a more, much more comfortable spot, but back then it was so much less certain. And I guess um, just to bring it to today, I mean – in terms of the, you know, a lot of your listeners are, are in the community, understand that for, for listeners who aren't so much there or, or, you know, more lay people like me, how is the UN's current role? How does that line up with maybe the vision of Fred in this movie? Is it close to that? Is it, is the, how active is the UN in, in kind of ensuring that we, you know, that we don't go down a path of, of nuclear destruction? Well, I think a lot of people who were involved in the negotiation of the recent treaty uh, that went into effect, the treaty that prohibits nuclear weapons, the, the, the ban treaty, um, which no nuclear weapon state has signed on to, but it has enough people, according to the rules of treaty law, go into effect. So a lot of countries have, and I think the people who helped negotiate that have argued, well, the UN hasn't been as successful as it's supposed to be. The people who are the nuclear haves have not done the things that they said that they were going to agree to. Yeah, the numbers of nuclear weapons are lower than they were during the height of the Cold War, but we are really finding ways that that is, is falling back, like agreements that used to be into effect of not having intermediate range nuclear weapons was weapons that you could fire that, that almost caused things like the Cuban Missile Crisis and stuff. These very dangerous weapons, they, they're dangerous because they're deployed often in theater and they're so quick. The worry is, is that if you, have a, if you have at least a missile that's coming 30 minutes and you can detect it and you can fire back, there's that sense, well, they're not going to fire because they'll notice I'm firing. You start having forwardly deployed medium-range nuclear weapons. Now you're in a situation where people are not going to know whether or not they'll even have a chance to respond. We thought we solved some of this stuff. Ronald Reagan had the uh, Intermediate for Nuclear Forces Treaty. The Trump administration canceled it. The, the, the New START Treaty was uh, the most recent version of this that the, the Obama administration negotiated with Russia. There almost was a chance that that did get extended, and just luckily it got extended for another couple of years, but there was a sense maybe that was going to fall apart. A lot of these old agreements that people that Dan uh, early in his life would have hated have now started to kind of fall apart. Does the UN serve a role in this? I mean, they're often the place where these negotiations take place. There is this thing called the Conference on Disarmament that is supposed to be the venue for discussing any new arms control agreements, but it operates off of consensus. 
meaning one country can block the agenda of what they're going to negotiate. And it hasn't had an agenda in many, many years. And it kind of goes back and forth, whether it's Pakistan, who is blocking things like a treaty that would prohibit the production of new fissile material, Mm -hmm. or China blocking that and other things because of wanting a a treaty on, on space weapons. So the UN, people are getting frustrated with it. And so the UN's role, because of the fact they operate on consensus, because of the ghost of Christmas past got his wish and people need to talk to each other. Right. If people decide, you know what, I'm just not going to talk. I'm going to talk to you, but it's not this year because I- I'm going to block the consensus of this. This is where you get into a bad situation. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, and you know, maybe this gets into the next part of the discussion, but the, you know, the, I think the open question is the value of talk. And, yeah. you know, you mentioned at least people are discussing all this kind of stuff. But if we really got into a major global conflict, you know, would that would that channel be effective in ensuring that it didn't escalate to to that doomsday point or you know would it kind of all go out the window once you know once guns started firing and we were really embroiled in that i mean we have these various uh you know talking about dr strangelove we have these various hotlines that exist between nuclear weapon states like there's one that it's not a red phone but there's a way to communicate between the united states and russia you've seen versions of it like in some of all fears and other movies we've covered on the podcast so like that is meant to be in in times of crisis ways to communicate but it's not like regular dialogue so we do other things we're supposed to do these things called strategic stability dialogues where the united states and russia um, or the united states and china get together and talk about well what if we were getting a shooting war what would you do because if you have some conversations do you trust everything that they say yeah no but you try to get a little bit of a sense of what they're interested in so then you can start to plan the goal is not based on worst case assumptions if arms control has any value it's because it starts to f- allow people to make choices based off of reality and limits the range of possibilities. And that you can get into a situation where maybe you can understand what stability can take place if you have arms control in place, you have a, you have verification. So you know that the other side has this number of weapons. They have 100 and not 1,000. Because if they have 1,000, you need to have 1,001. Yeah. If they have 100, maybe you only need 101. And the world looks a lot different with 100 weapons versus 1,001. So... I think that is a lot of what the role of arms control, the idea of talking, the idea that even in the world of of North Korea, there's been lots of studies that have been put out by by scholars such as Victor Cha that have shown that every time you're, as long as you're talking to North Korea, they don't tend to do crazy things. When they when they stop, when you stop talking to them, they decide, will we want you to come back and talk to us? We want the things that we want out of this relationship. Yeah. We're going to start testing missiles again. Well, that was, and that was the next question I was going to ask from you know a lay perspective whether the kind of vision espoused in this film it seems to assume you know all countries at the table who want mm-hmm. to be part of this dialogue and you have nations like north korea that are a little bit more rogue and like doing you know um, not totally disconnected but almost disconnected as well as terrorist organizations that aren't don't belong to any nation state and you know are, are instead part of their own philosophy you know isis and things like that that how do you talk to them because it's it's so difficult and you know that those raise some interesting questions in terms of whether the film is too ideological in that in that regard. Well, Gabe, did you want to do a, an hour and 15 minutes podcast? Uh, <laughs> or did you want to do another one of these three-hour podcasts? Because is, yeah. we, we, we've, we've talked about this stuff occasionally on the show where you want to have the right number of people involved in that have a role to play in, in this from a perspective of like arms control agreements. But the idea behind the, the non-proliferation treaty was it included everybody. Some countries never were involved. India and Pakistan never signed on. Uh, Cuba didn't sign on for a long time. 
the uh, you know North Korea was on there. Iran still is. Mm-hmm. Um, North Korea left, and there's still questions about whether or not they, by by law, left according to the agreement of the treaty. Um, you know, Israel never is a member of the NPT. But the idea is, the more you get together and, and talk, you can either bring those people through various mechanisms into the fold, or you still the problem is better, and you have a united front that says, okay, well, you may have nuclear weapons, and we're gonna try to be able to deal with that but now you're the only one and yeah you may feel strong because you have this but what world will it look like when you start to use them in a more aggressive way when you have the entire rest of the world united behind you right there's all of those elements and when you start bringing in you know non-state actors well that was always the fear that even people like Oppenheimer had early on, which was, man, this would really suck if uh, nuclear science allowed any individual power, uh, whether you were a state or not, to get a nuclear weapon. So maybe we should do things like the Baruch plan and cut this stuff off uh, from early on. Would it have worked? We don't know, but there were various elements where we got close. That's interesting. Well, yeah, just like with the podcast, I could have made that movie probably four, <laughs> four or five hours of debate with more ghosts. They need to bring in more ghosts, um, maybe some goblins, other spirits. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he could have he could have had uh, more family members come in and talk, but it was cut off. So, well, let's let's cut off the nuclear discussion here and move to the the parking lot the the parking lot movie discussion, which is reminds me of now that it's fun that we're in person here. If we were going to go to the movie theaters and talk about this in the parking lot afterwards, kind of what we thought about the film before we went our separate ways. I wanted to ask you, you know, my first question here, which was, you know, the the Rod Serling role. Like, he wrote this. He's known for writing a lot of the kind of Twilight Zone stuff. And people, because this movie didn't do so well, people have tried to figure out, well, what was Rod Serling thinking when he wrote this? So one of his, um, you know, major biographers who wrote a book, his name is Gordon Sander. He wrote a book called Serling. The Rise and Twilight of Television's Last Angry Man. And he said, quote, Most episodes of The Twilight Zone that dealt with social change tended to end in an, on an optimistic tone. Carol is so unlike most of Serling's other psychodramatic work, it's depressing. And because it was weird because he was basically an optimist. So he suggested things like the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was not too uh, distant past when this was written, the assassination of JFK, the Johnson administration's escalation in Vietnam. All of this really inspired Serling to be a bit more depressing when he wrote this. The biographer says, for a liberal like Rod Serling, that was a bleak year in the program. The, the movie reflected that. Um, as you've seen a couple now of Twilight Zone episodes and stuff, you would you agree with that? Like, this does seem to be a bit of a, a different type of take from him. You know, thinking to the the Twilight Zone that I have seen, which is not much, and I did come across at the end with a kind of... It ended on a, a weird note, right? It, it wasn't like... Um, watching those Christmas Carol movies like we talked about right. where you had this this sort of um you know very happy fulfilling ending which was strange because the music the music at the end it ends with like very like religious christmas music very like intense but the music doesn't really match the the tone which is very muted again grudge doesn't you know have this this huge change and it really is unclear about where the world goes from there and the movie really ends with him eating uh his breakfast and the credits play over him like an image of him and he doesn't like he just is reflecting yeah and it it just um it doesn't leave you with a clear idea and you know maybe that's when you grapple with such big stuff in something like this you're talking about stuff that's just key to human nature and you know i think we're still struggling with this that last 
act with the Ghost of Christmas Future, I mean, that really hit me hard in terms of thinking about during the years during the Trump presidency, a lot of the America First stuff, and just frankly, what we've seen during COVID, where it's been a lot of a lot of people focused on their own personal, you know, freedoms and all this. The Imperial Me would be one of those people on Facebook who would be one of those like yeah, the few people that are really causing most of the percentage of disinformation. A hundred percent, exactly, and it just we're still fighting with these same ideas we're doing it in different venues but we're still dealing with it and i think if if rod serling is looking at like this great arc of history and the conflict between cooperation versus competition this has been part of humans you know from the beginning of time and if you're confronting something so big it's very difficult to come out and and just say yeah okay everything's gonna be fine because i i I think you don't know and so for me, it, it, it was more negative, but I, it, it fit for me because I'm personally struggling with a lot of that stuff as I, you know, as I think more through what we're seeing in the world right now. And so I think it was a fitting ending, but yeah, it was different. It was not, and maybe this is why it didn't do so well. It wasn't like a, you know, a, a, you know, you, oh, I just finished my 30 minute episode of TV and now that's wrapped up and I can go, go to my next thing. It's, it's bleaker than like, you know, it's a wonderful life, right? but I, I don't really, wouldn't say it is any more bleaker than like the end of time enough at last the one where right. the guy is uh you know he's he survives a nuclear war and now it's time to read but his glasses break and he's like oh shoot yeah. maybe i was you know in a way like a little it's own his own kind of fence like it's self-enforced smaller fence that he put around himself and in his books decided he didn't want to engage with the world all that much he just wanted to read because you know leave me alone a different kind of isolationist, right? Yeah. Um, and that, that ends pretty bleak as well, you know, but there's that message at the end where Rod Serling pops them out of nowhere and starts giving a little monologue about why we need to care more about others and stuff. There, this doesn't exist here. Like, it's just a, a rollover credits uh, in the background, you know, the guy eating breakfast and figuring out, thinking on his own. But I don't know if it's really any more bleak than, yeah, some of the other Twilight Zone stuff. And I, I would say... That this idea of needing to help encourage people to think about the consequences of points they make, like that people don't do on the internet all that much. Uh, what is the consequence if I start to share disinformation about COVID? Like, right. yeah, I don't want to wear, I don't want to get into it too much here, but you know, like this kinds of stuff. What are the consequences of that? Well, it could be someone getting sick and, and dying, and and you see that get reflected when sometimes that does happen to people with nuclear weapons. It's very similar when you talk about, well, you know what, if we just had a, a new bomber and, and we were our, our, our submarines were a little stronger than and, and more quiet than everyone else's and our new missile could be – so you get into these levels of like, well, it's, we need it for strategic stability and everything else. But if you don't have that focus of, a, well, what these these things do when they are used, the chance that they could be used in accidentally or any of this stuff, if you don't talk about it in those terms and you allow the debate to be very sterile – and you go to Hiroshima where there's rubble and no bodies, then that's not great. So that's why a lot of people in the nuclear arms control field have tried to start to focus a lot more on the humanitarian impacts of nuclear war. What do nuclear weapons do and what do they do to the human body? And this kind of gets to that, not just the imagery that we see in the um, in Hiroshima, but just in general, like how does it affect people? And finally, how does it affect the psyche of people when they start to think in those yeah. terms? You know, when Dan starts talking about we don't need to help the needy, well, we need to build more bombs. Like when you – that's your governing philosophy 
of your world, you get into a situation that we have here in the States where it just is depressing that we focus on the things that we focus on and seem to be so ineffectual or no, or powerless against the other things that we would love to change. Well, in, in, in the movie, I mean, the movie is so much about nuclear weapons. He kind of gets into this in the, um, in, in the kind of second act with the Ghost of Christmas present where he talks about hunger and these other struggles, right? And I, I wonder, maybe my only critique about the use of this, and maybe it's the way it had to be, but Rod Serling seems to say, you know, okay, if you haven't adopted a position of cooperation, collaboration till now, well, now's the time to do it because nuclear weapons are here. Right. And to me, the argument shouldn't, you shouldn't have to invoke that. The argument should be based on cooperation and living in a society is beneficial in its own merits, even if you don't have the specter of nuclear weapons. And, you know, I think, I think that's kind of where we are with this. I mean, what if COVID, to take it back to COVID, I mean, what if COVID had the potential to be a truly, you know, like civilization ending pandemic, but it's not. So we have a lot of these behaviors and that's still a bad outcome. So, you know, I guess to get back to your point, it's, um, to what extent is it depressing that we need to invoke these kind of doomsday arguments to get people actually focused on on this problem of you know trying to trying to cooperate and, and like live in a functional society? Do you think the Christmas setting of the film added anything to that debate? Like, is it is the movie if it wasn't about Christmas and there was some other? I mean, it's hard to find out what that would look like because it draws so heavily on the, the Charles Dickens story. Yeah, but if it didn't have that and it was just a a person trying to understand and reflect on how they need to be concerned about global affairs and thinking humanity as humanity and, and all of that. Like, do you think the Christmas setting took away from that? Was it too weird? Like, we're contrary and pessimists in 2021, thinking, like, this is silly. But, yeah. you know, for 1964, oh, maybe another version of A Christmas Carol that's not just a, another updated, you know, modern time one, but takes that framework and does something with it. I don't know. To me, it's like, I'm glad this movie exists. I find it incredibly fascinating. But I could understand 100% if someone's watching this and isn't into these things. They would just be like, what the hell? Yeah, exactly. You you have to be primed. It's a great question. I don't think it, it necessarily helped. I mean, maybe in the helping you suspend your disbelief with the kind of supernatural things mm-hmm. that happen. You know, Christmas is a time where... You know, magic is is maybe more likely to rear its head. Maybe that's where it, it helps. But I I just didn't. It didn't really tie in. I mean, these messages of kind of charity and everything. And it was weird that the religious music at the end. It, it just seemed a bit disjointed. I think maybe this is another critique. If executed better, it could have mm-hmm. added. But in its in the state it was, it didn't really for me. Well, let me let me throw one more thing into this uh, mix here. If you look at a, a Christmas Carol, what does it touch on? It touches on a lot of the major social issues that were going on at that time, you know, poverty, industrialization, the starting to be much more stark haves and have-nots and people literally starving in the streets because their their boss decided that, you know, I think I could get a a bit more productivity out of you by not paying you and making you kind of fight for survival here and kind of not knowing what the impacts of that will be on the families. That was the major societal kind of issue at the time. I think the things that people stress a lot with nuclear weapons are is that it's not just a thing that's separate from all of these other causes 
that are out there. People are starting to look a lot more these days about the intersectionality between things like racism and nuclear weapons, because there's a lot you can get into there about who are the people who are often hurt the most in the process of building nuclear weapons. It's people of color uh, who were either involved in testing of atomic science on them, or maybe they're feeling the effects of uranium mining on indigenous populations. And you get into like, well, we spend money on this and not on social programs. You can get into lots of ways that intersectionality, you know, focuses. Dr. Strangelove does a wonderful job of describing the role of nuclear weapons in it and how awful that's connected to patriarchy and the fact that there are no female characters in that movie right. on purpose. Right. Because it's not meant to be a situation where that, you know, the bomb is a metaphor for patriarchy and a bunch of other awful things as well. So, like, these are the things that get connected to this. So I think what... I'm glad this movie does exist is because it tries to put the fact that nuclear weapons are a symptom of as well as one of the major influences for what ails the world these days. If you get rid of nuclear weapons, you solve everything? No. But they're another reflection of, of how awful you know things can be, and it takes people to think about this in this way, understand the connections between these things, and make some agency to try to change it. And who knows what Dan Grudge's agency is going to be on this? We don't know. Yeah. Hopefully it's something, but... It's not as clear to us as the way it is at the end of, uh, you know, A Muppet's Carol, right. Christmas Carol, um, and all of that kind of stuff. Who's a who knows? Yeah. Let's let's um, wrap up here our discussions. We could we could get into all kinds of fun stuff. I had a, a whole bunch of notes about, like, other UN movies that were in this series. But anyways, I, I do find it interesting that this tried to be a thing of a pro-UN film. Do you think this assisted you in that effort? Or, I don't know, where, where do you see... No, I, I for me, I took more... And maybe it's viewing it now. I took more of that kind of philosophical thing about cooperation versus competition, how we, you know, how we engage with our rivals to, you know, to, right. to live in a society, that that kind of stuff. The, the UN stuff was more subtle for me, but I could see at the time if it was in the news and everything, it would be a lot more. Well, the, the UN is rarely raised as like a, um, a character in, right. in stories of like other than just it being a place where like people work a negotiation team a, an interrogator or a an interpreter or something else it's never like well we need to talk about the value of the un the un is maybe often more or less like talked about in terms of being oh an impotent peacekeeping force yeah. or a, a force for bad so i don't know maybe there is these debates that need to be done here still even with trump in power there was never there was talk about abolishing a lot of other stuff never mm -hmm. was there talk about well we should get rid of the un or well leaving. i mean john bolton who was the national security <laughs> advisor at one point maybe but anyways uh let, let's wrap up here let's do our rating system you know we always like to rate all of our films or tv stuff you know out of five uh, with one being the worst you would never you wouldn't even put it with some coal in a, in a stocking with five being something you would really recommend to people but i do like to tailor the rating system based on the content you know let's look at this i've, I've gotten my cohort of various ghosts of different timelines we negotiated this up we, we talked about it here's what we're gonna do let's rate a carol for another christmas on a scale of one out of five magic record players because hint to my wife my uh, uh, record player is on my christmas list this year if i imagined if i had one magic record player it'd be nice because you know i'd be able to listen to one tune in one room of the house but if i had five yeah. strategically distributed yeah. throughout the house then they all sing to it'd each be other chaos it'd be everywhere or yeah. a cacophony <laughs> of um, music that all kind of plays together and i'll be able to march up and down the stairs to those beats so how many magic record players would you give this film gabe i give it a solid four um i thought it was yeah very, very thinking piece carefully put together well acted um yeah i mean maybe gets a few nits for 
yeah, the whole Christmas thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I mentioned, you know, this kind of the the main characters, you know, the way he actually has his change of heart isn't isn't all that convincing. But no, I, I think it's solid. And I think it's it's not too long. It's definitely worth a watch. I think the fact that it's not so long and the fact that it's familiar uh, gets a lot of points for people that are new to this and may want to watch the movie. Um, I'm surprised. I actually just do a 3.75. So one of those mm, record players okay. is uh, needs to be fixed up by by our friend Kevin or new, something. New, new needle, yeah, yeah, or it's a, or it's a a, a mini. Um, the reason is just like I think a lot of I've been giving fours to a lot of stuff that I really like, and that is a bit higher up than this. I think the quality of the writing could have been tightened up a bit, but the performances are really good because I'm I'm on the side of what this movie is trying to get to. Yeah. So I was a little bit less interested in, in that side of stuff and just more kind of curious how this went but it's still good i i uh, something that's 3.75 i recommend to people i don't recommend sitting around the, the fireplace watching yeah. this with your family don't break this out on uh, christmas eve or christmas day yeah no. but watch it uh it's on youtube uh, okay so if you do want to find more stuff related to this we have a couple things we want to recommend to listeners um, I've got two things just here. One is one of my favorite versions of this A Christmas Carol story is called Scrooge. It's from 1988. I always forget about how old the movie is, but it stars Bill Murray. He's, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge. He's putting on, it's very meta. He's putting on a production of A Christmas Carol for his TV show, but he's he just wants to cut corners and make the thing as quick as possible and is just a jerk. He doesn't recognize that he is the character. And um, it's the first version, I think, of... A Christmas Carol I ever saw. My mom and dad should not have let me see this movie when I was as young as I did see it because it's a it's also a little bit of a weird adulty film like in the sense like there's like imagery of people dead and and fire and you know, all this stuff. But I it stuck with me and I'll probably rewatch it again uh, for the holidays here. But I recommend people check that out. Secondly, I want to say thank you to Gabe for I just we opened up Christmas presents here and he got me a cool board game from a local place uh, in DC and the board game is called We're Doomed and it's by Breaking Games and it looks like the the point of the game is you have everybody's like world leaders and 15 minutes something the world's going to end somehow some sort of an event's going to take place if it's 15 minutes what does that make me think well that's a submarine launched nuclear weapon there you go. off the coast <laughs> um but it could be anything and it's you trying to build essentially an escape rocket it's not trying to fix the problem uh, it's not like uh the ghost of christmas present or past or future is like hey here's what we need to do to solve the problem it's like no 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 it's Imperial me. We're getting in our rocket. We're getting the hell out of here. So I'm looking real forward a lot to play this game with you and, and all of our other friends over the holidays. So yeah, thank you so fun. much for that. Of course. What about you, Gabe? You got anything you want to recommend? Watching this, I was I was reminded of our past uh, podcast adventures watching. Uh, you mentioned Time Enough at Last and No Time Like the Past, some other Twilight Zone episodes. So other pieces from the Rod Serling canon. Uh, so check that out. That's episode number 44 of Supercritical. And uh, you can watch those and watch these and kind of see how he took on uh, nuclear weapons and some of his uh, other programs. Excellent. And uh, your your wife re- recommended people to watch the uh, Muppets Christmas Carol. Yeah, Muppet, Muppet Christmas Carol. So, so after you're very depressed um, yeah. from doing all this and playing We're Doomed and you're like, you have nothing to live for, watch Muppet Christmas Carol. That'll, that'll get you back to uh, even, even keel. Perfect. Well, Gabe, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and for hosting me yeah, in person here. It's great this to wonderful. be back in person. This is good. Excellent. Well, we're looking forward to many more of these in, in 2022. For sure. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong, 
uh, either nuke-wise or, you know what, maybe I um, should give Tiny Tim his due because he did wrap up that story really well and clearly inspired Gabe. Uh, so maybe, maybe I need to just let my childhood bullies win. There are a couple ways you can do that. You can contact me over Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. I also check an email account, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. And we put up a bunch of our resource links and other things that help to inform this episode in terms of the research that went into it on our website, supercriticalpodcast.com. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer and Gabe. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.